Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Banter on the Parkway. I am your host, Brian, from BannersOnTheParkway.com, and I am joined, as always, by our panel of astute basketball writers. So first of all is a man who has never killed for the thrill, but interestingly, he has cut for the car. It's Brad. How you doing, Brad? Wow, that is a great throwback. I actually just heard that song while I was lifting a couple days back. Um, I'm doing pretty well. Really enjoyed yesterday being 65 up here. A little less enjoyment out of today's 44-degree rain. Gotcha. Um, unfortunately, that car you cut for, a Ford Escort. So, I, I don't have, know. Was it worth it? I had Was a Mercury-Sable GS wagon. <laughs> That's right. I had a 93 Buick Century. And it was not 1993 anymore. <laughs> uh, I bought that in like 2006. Anyway, uh, also joining us because uh, Joel is still MIA. Um, I believe he is searching for DB Cooper's treasure right now, but I'm not sure. Um, is Braden? So, Braden, how are you doing? I I'm good. How are you doing? Uh, I'm you know I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. Some no people problem. don't ask. Rude people. Short people, bald people. Anyway, um, so we're coming to you uh, this week after Xavier uh, stumbled through the end of the regular season in two games without Paul Scruggs. They uh, played two close late games and lost them both. They lost on the road at Providence and then a heartbreaker at home to Butler by a score of 72 to 71. Of course, a buzzer beating three by uh, Kamar Baldwin uh, doomed the Musketeers to an eight and 10 Big East record this season. Um, But there's a lot of news in in college basketball in general. So that's where we're going to start before we kind of focus back in on Xavier. Um, So in this past week, um, several tickets to the NCAA tournament have already been punched. Um, So Liberty, um, Winthrop, Yale, Bradley, Belmont, Utah State, and ETSU um, all have won their conference tournaments or in the case of Yale, finished first in the Ivy League and then won their auto bid um, because the Ivy League tournament has been canceled, which we are going to get to in a second. Um, But so several teams have already won automatic qualification. I think the most notable uh, being Utah State, who knocked off San Diego State, um, who, of course, for much of the year was undefeated. They were, you know, battling for a one or two seed. Um, and then Utah State was able to grab the auto bid out of the Mountain West. But do any of those names uh, jump off the sheet at you guys as far as teams who have already um, clinched their their uh, bid in the NCAA tournament? Maybe somebody who who you think could stun everybody and make it to the second weekend. I think both ETSU and yeah. Utah State. Um, are just pretty good teams. Um, both of them would have had a bubble argument. It, they'd have been close. It would have been hard to sneak either of them in ahead of teams that didn't have bad losses. And they've each got a couple either Q3 or Q4 losses, but they're both good. Um, Utah State's got three Q1 wins now. They're three and four in Q1 and two and two in Q2. So, I mean, they can definitely punch with the big boys. ETSU's got a Q1 win as well. And they have just destroyed anybody who would in theory not be as good as them. I think Utah State gave us the best shot by far um, of the conference tournament so far. It's hard to top a game winner 
uh, where the guy literally hits you in the wrist and you still jar it. Yeah, it is kind of hard to top that, isn't it? But I'm <laughs> hoping at some point in March uh, it will be topped. Um, but anyway, Braden, it, or do any of those jump jump out at you? Obviously, Brad took the the two good ones. Um, kind of inconsiderate. Uh, he also didn't ask me how I was doing. I don't. <laughs> do we like Brad? Here's like uh, here's I'm, some food I'm for thought. Is, is Brad a good good podcaster? Just I don't know. Something to think about. Anyway, go ahead. I'm, I'm not prepared. I'm not prepared to tackle that quite yet. Um, Let's I ask the Providence fans. Say, <laughs> oh jeez. Um, I was also going to go with Utah State or ETSU, but um, mainly looking at um, Utah State's big gun, Sam Merrill. As Brad mentioned, he hit the game winner against San Diego State, but he was hot uh, in all three of their games in the Mountain West uh, tournament. He put up 29 against New Mexico, 27 against Wyoming, then 27 again in the final. So he's definitely hot going into the tournament, and uh, we've seen it through the years with uh, like uh, mid-major teams or uh, teams from smaller conferences. Uh, when they've got a big gun that they can get rolling in the first weekend, uh, sometimes they're able to surprise somebody uh, in that opening round game. I'd be looking for him to be one of those guys this year. All right, now Hot this take. is you heard it here first. This is not in our script, but who is your favorite? small school guy who got insanely hot during the NCAA tournament and led his team to an upset because I have a personal favorite, but, but do you guys have one off the top of your head? I'd go with the obvious choice of Wally Zerbiak. Yeah. I would go Harold, the show Arsenault who took Weber State over UNC. Yeah. Mm. I think that was 1996, 1999. It's been a while. One of those seasons. Um, Yeah. Harold the show Arsenal, gotta be him. Um, I, I don't even think there's uh, anyone else close for me. I did. I was a big fan of Blake Step, but by then Gonzaga was kind of coming out of the underdog role and more becoming uh, the force they are in the the NCAA tournament now. Um, but yeah, I actually like Belmont quite a bit. Um, they did not really rack up any impressive wins this year. Um, they didn't beat anyone in the. Ken Palm top 100. They're not in the Ken Palm top 100, uh, but they do shoot the ball very well. And I like Casey Alexander. Um, he grew up, he drew up a really nice action to get them the game winner against Murray state and get them into the NCAA tournament. Neither of those teams had a shot um, other than winning that game to get into the NCAA tournament. So, I mean, that shot literally extended their season as far as meaningful games go. And um yeah, I like them quite a bit. I don't know that they're going to pull off the upset, but um, they're 10th in the nation in effective field goal percentage. They're 5th in the nation in two-point percentage. They're a team that um, if they come up against an offense that is inefficient um, and grinds itself to a halt, um, they're a team that I think could surprise someone in the first round, uh, but I'm not saying that they will. I think Utah State and ETSU are both much better more well-rounded teams and things like that so obviously um as i mentioned yale um is in the tournament they uh did not have to play a conference tournament and that was because of the coronavirus so brad uh what is going on with the coronavirus obviously none of us are doctors um but you think you are a lot smarter than you are so why don't you go ahead and explain that to us (laughs) well actually I don't. So I talked to a friend of mine who's a doctor 
um, who does some work in epidemiology. Brad, you don't have friends. <laughs> um, <laughs> just just say you Googled to it. What was going on here? Uh, and he pointed me towards a couple of articles that he thought for, were useful. Obviously, the big news, uh, we'll start over in Europe where this kind of went from a Chinese issue to the serious outbreak. Uh, Syria, Italy's top soccer league, is just completely canceled for the rest of the month. Uh, most of Europe is playing their major uh, soccer games behind closed doors. Uh, we all follow that enough to know that that is a huge economic impact and a massive step. Um, usually playing a game behind closed doors is a punishment for overt racism or cheating or something like that. Now um, the Champions League in Germany is going to be behind closed doors. La Liga is playing without fans. Like I said, Serie A is canceled. The EPL in England has taken the strange step of saying that they're not going to shake hands before the games. And apparently <laughs> they're hoping right. that like the 42,000 people crammed shoulder to shoulder in the stadium, I guess just don't shake hands with each other either. Um, right, like I watch Newcastle games where most of the fans do not wear shirts and they're like, but players won't be shaking hands. So we are doing as much as we can to keep everyone safe. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, right. Other than the horde of, sweaty shirtless people like 50 feet away you are anyway go so ahead that came over here and uh has impacted schools on one end you've got harvard which has canceled classes gone to all remote classes at the other end of the scholastic spectrum um, a lot of preschools in this area and also kent state have canceled classes um and gone to remote I know Ohio State is talking about it. The University of Akron is talking about it. Like you mentioned, the Ivy League tournament was canceled. Um, that brings us to the MAC tournament, which is going to be played here in Cleveland. They have already taken down the banners outside the Q or Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse or whatever you, it is you want to call it, the place where LeBron used to play and doesn't anymore, and now no one goes to basketball games anyway. I'm old school. I still call it Gund Arena. Okay. Whatever you want to mm -hmm. call that arena right next to <clears> – <throat> whether you want to call it Jacobs or progressive field where TJ Barty shout out, we're getting real Cleveland centric here again. Um, the banners are down outside that that is a lot because of an announcement that just came. I'm going to read verbatim from the governor athletics for indoor events. We are asking for no events with spectators other than the athletes, parents, and others essential to the game right now. Outdoor events can continue. And then governor DeWine hashtagged COVID-19. I like to think that he tweets like the same way we all tweet. And he was just like, I should throw a, a trendy hashtag on the end of this to get some more eyes. I'm guessing he's probably got a person to do that for him. Uh, the way this impacts though, NCAA basketball is that that means the first four, the Mac tournament and the Cleveland regional now are all looking at being played in front of no fans. Um, whether that will change by the time the tournament starts, whether it will become more stringent or things will be lessened obviously is just speculation. Um, that also means that the OHSAA basketball tournament is now being played in front of <clears throat> no fans, except for tonight's games where apparently we have put something out to tell the coronavirus not to spread it tonight's games because those are being played in front of fans. Tomorrow's will be played with no fans. So whatever sense that makes, um, I've, seen a lot of people you know as with anything you get the we're overreacting we're underreacting what my friend told me who works in the field and then the research that he pointed me to uh 
a lot of people will tell you that this is, you know, well, the flu kills more people, which is true because everyone gets the flu. Um, we can also vaccinate for the flu and know how to handle the flu and everything like that. And it spreads at about, um, it's R not reproduction number. That's R and then a zero is 1.3. Uh, COVID-19 spreads at more than twice that rate and is roughly 34 times as fatal. So this is not the flu. Um, it is something that I think needs to be taken seriously. And personally, as a lifelong Ohioan, I kind of like to see our state out in front of taking care of its citizens. Right now, the Big East Tournament in New York is scheduled to go on as planned. Yeah, um, I think, you know, obviously with Governor DeWan being the person kind of trying to be at the forefront of this, um, with everything political, roughly half the people hate it. Um, but I don't know that a lot of people are going to have a lot negative to say about this. I mean, it is a real issue. We've seen um, across the world, especially in Italy, where their response was not quite as quick as maybe some people thought it should have been. Um, you know, we've seen it cause major repercussions because it was not contained. Um, and so I, I, I do like the, the steps um, to try and contain this and to keep everyone safe. Ultimately, um, it would be weird to watch the NCAA tournament without fans. Um, but I think one year of watching the NCAA tournament and it being weird is completely worth it when you talk about um, potential cost in human life if we just go on like nothing's happening. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't, you know, I don't know all the details, but I do like that things are being done to try and keep everyone safe. Um, so now kind of taking the focus off of everything and putting it right back on um, Xavier, uh, which is what we try and focus on as much as we focus on anything on this podcast. Um, where does Xavier stand on the bubble, Brad? As of right now, <clears throat> I think Xavier is in the tournament. Um, the tournament, you may have noticed, is not starting. The tournament doesn't start for another week. <laughs> right, so. does not start right now. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> there, the bracket matrix is up to a, pulling 141 brackets right now, which when you consider that this is a one-man show is just an amazing amount of work. Xavier is on all but seven of those 141 brackets. So anywhere that you read that tells you that Xavier needs at least two wins in the Big East tournament or anything like that is just not true. Right now, Xavier's in. Unfortunately, they can't just say, well, we'll take our chances with Bracket Matrix guys and see you at Selection Sunday. They've got to play games. Um, if they win against DePaul, that punches their ticket. I mean, they're just not going to miss the tournament if they beat DePaul, um, unless something immense were to happen. The bubble would have to shrink considerably. Uh, if they lose to DePaul, then <laughs> I don't think we want to ponder what happens if they lose to DePaul. If they lose to DePaul, they should still be in the tournament, but it would make selection Sunday much less pleasant for all of us on Bart Torvik's ranker. That would drop them down to the penultimate team in the tournament. They would be looking at playing at an empty UD arena against North Carolina state again. Uh, in the first four. Oh, gosh. I was at that <laughs> game. <laughs> I, I know Ugh. that you were there. I know that you and Byron both enjoyed some city barbecue before the game and then enjoyed absolutely nothing 
um, after. I enjoyed the brief time where Xavier was making a comment. True story. Um, when Justin Martin shot that three that would have tied the game in the second half, he was literally like four feet in front of me. Um, and for a split second, I thought it looked good out of his hand. And then I realized that, no, it didn't. <laughs> we were going to lose. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, losing to DePaul, um, I think Xavier would still be in. I think they would still merit inclusion. That being said, if you lose to DePaul and then get left out of the NCAA tournament, you can't really, like, cry uh, that it was unfair because you just lost to DePaul. So maybe you should have beaten DePaul. Um, but Graydon, why don't you um, talk us through kind of what the the rest of the bubble looks like and um, who Xavier should be rooting for um, or rooting against so that the bubble does not shrink. Yeah, so <clears throat> we've been doing the uh, bubble watch uh, articles just about every day, except for today, weirdly enough. Um, but the teams that are the listed as the last five in on bracket matrix right now are Wichita State, um, Utah State's obviously in. They got the auto bid, Xavier, Stanford, Richmond, and then UC. So UC has uh, is on 99 of those brackets and Wichita State's on 94. They are the uh, least likely, if you're looking just at the raw bracket numbers, to get in. Um, so they'll definitely be looking to pick up wins uh, in the AAC tournament. Uh, because you want to stockpile quality opponents, obviously. The teams that are sitting just outside of the tournament right now, uh, who we should all be rooting against, um, the first one for obvious reasons is UCLA. Uh, they kind of stumbled through most of the regular season, then they uh, hit a hot stretch uh, through February, and then just lost to USC on Saturday. They still sit just outside of the field. with well, They're only on 54 brackets. Um so, yeah, definitely be cheering against them, if for no other reason than Mick Cronin's the coach, and it's not fun to watch them play. Um, Texas is also sitting just outside, um, along with NC State, Mississippi State, and Northern Iowa is still listed on 12 brackets. Um, I personally think that they are out of it at this point. Um, losing to Drake obviously did them no favors. That's another Q3 loss for them. They're up to three Q3 losses. They did clean up non-D1 opponents and Q4 opponents. They're kind of resting on that. But they did not have a strong schedule, and they kind of shot themselves in the foot there. So those are the teams to be looking at. Um, UCLA, Texas, NC State, and Mississippi State are all sitting just outside the tournament right now. And then with the other teams on the bubble being Wichita State, Stanford, Richmond, and UC. So that's kind of a look at where the bubble is right now. Xavier's kind of on the top side of it, but they are definitely considered one of the uh, last four in or at the uh, the highest, they are one of the last four buys. Gotcha. So obviously Xavier should be rooting for teams like Gonzaga and unfortunately Dayton. Um, teams that are for sure going to be in, but are in a conference yes. that may be single bid league. Um, I think the A-10 is probably looking at being a single bid league um, if Dayton wins the A-10 tournament just because um, Rhode Island kind of crept down their legs down the stretch there. Um, but, uh, yeah, so Xavier um, is still doing okay as far as the bubble goes. The sky is not falling. Um, but if they lose to DePaul, the sky is definitely falling. Um, it, it, it would be. I want to ask Braden one question here. We're looking at a potential – 
Cincinnati Wichita State semifinal um, in the AAC tournament. That would mean that Cincinnati had knocked off either UCF or USF, and Wichita State had knocked off either UConn or Tulane. I want to cheer for Cincinnati to lose that game. If they lose in their conference semifinal, do you think that they're in, or do you think that that would be enough to drop them off the bubble? I think that would be enough to drop them off the bubble, personally. Um, I might be just a little biased because, like all decent people, I hate UC. But Wichita State, if you compare uh, their resumes, uh, it looks like Wichita State has the better resume between the two of them. Um, I think UC will probably have to, if not get to the final, probably get the auto bid in the AAC, but getting to the final um, would probably do enough. I think a loss to Wichita State in the semifinal would probably do them in. Um, Again, depending on how the uh, hundreds of other games go, uh, it could go either way. But uh, yeah, I think Wichita State beating them would probably slide them off the bubble and maybe into the first four out. Yeah, I think I think if that becomes a um, if that comes to fruition, that matchup, whoever loses that game is probably going to be sitting there very uneasily on Selection Sunday um, because you know you can't pick up good wins in the AAC um, tournament without beating Cincinnati, Wichita State, or Houston. Um, so. Obviously, if one of those two teams falls before having the chance to do one of those things, um, they're they're kind of uh, I don't want to say completely screwed, but it's not good. Um, <laughs> my personal hope is that they both lose early. Houston takes the auto bid, and we get a one bid AAC because oh my gosh, that would be hilarious. Um, but be anyway, um, so. Xavier, um, a lot of Xavier Twitter, a lot of conversation around Xavier um, since the game on Saturday night has surrounded um, Coach Steele. Um, and obviously, uh, there were, were, you know, through two regular seasons of Coach Steele. We don't really know how the postseason is going to go. Um, but let's talk about Coach Steele. Uh, so first thing, um, Coach Steele is um, in his second year as a Xavier coach. So, Brad, um, what were Xavier's you know, last few notable coaches looking like after their first two years? Well, a lot of them entered with a little more stability than Coach Steele did. Uh, we'll go back to kind of our era. Um, <clears throat> I was born when Bob Stack was the coach, but I don't remember him. Pete Gillen's the first coach that I really was aware of. He came in his first two years. Xavier went to the NCAA tournament, but he came into a solid team um coach stack obviously wasn't one of those sneak out the door kind of guys or yeah i'm gonna stay here and then take the money and run at osu um nothing like that happened he inherited a solid program skip prosser did the same thing and i know skip prosser's absolutely beloved at xavier as well he should be he oversaw the first step up i guess you would say in conference difficulty from um, the Midwest Collegiate up to the A-10 in 95-96. Skip Prosser's second season, uh, he's probably quite thankful that Twitter hadn't been invented, or he would have been quite thankful back then because he went 13-15 and 15, um, in the A-10, and obviously that did not get Xavier into the tournament that year. Um, they were just flat out a bad team. Um, they got thumped a lot. They went 8-8 eight and eight in the A-10, and 
never came close to challenging for much of anything. Um, <clears throat> that was his second season. From Skip, you go to Thad Matta, um, and once again, Skip did the decent thing, left a pretty reasonable team already in place. Thad Matta, uh, we all know, had a ton of success at Xavier, and then pulled what remains to me the most despicable move in conference, or I'm sorry, in program history. I'm not going to waste any more breath on that guy. So he turned over a really unstable program to Sean Miller, who promptly missed the tournament in his first season and earned a 14 seed in his second season. Um, that's still in the A-10. He earned that 14 seed by virtue of a late run. <laughs> uh, Xavier once again lost their last two conference games that year to go to eight wins in their conference that year, but then they won the A-10 tournament. Otherwise he was missing the tournament again. Um, they beat St. John, St. Joe's 62, 61 in the tournament final. Great game. I remember that one distinctly, but so Sean Miller got off to, I think you would say probably a worse start than Travis Steele has as well, missing the tournament and then needing to take the auto bid. That brings us to Chris Mack who benefited from a lot of Sean Miller's recruiting. So it's kind of hard to judge where Mac starts. His very first team was that um, team that had Jordan Crawford and two Holloway and played the great game that everybody remembers. When coach Mac, then the first year that he had to recruit his own guys was the last year in the A-10 and Xavier went 17 and 14 that year and missed the tournament. He then picked up a 12 seed out of the big East <clears throat> Um, the next year, and that's that game you were talking about where Xavier lost in what I don't think any of us considered the actual tournament, but the play-in round against NC State. So that brings us to Travis Steele now. Um, if you, <clears throat> It depends on how you want to look at Chris Mack's tenure. If you want to say his first two years with his guys, um, Travis Steele's kind of tracking along the same route that Mack was. He's doing better than Miller was, um, but it probably can't be argued that he's not doing as well as Gillen or Matta did. Uh, Skip Prosser had a genuinely bad team in his second year. So all in all, if you're looking, then we're going to get more in depth here, but if you're looking just kind of at an overarching record, how they do in their conference and tournament bids, Travis Steele is tracking along like right along average for a Xavier coach. Yeah, and I mean, the one thing that, I don't know, um, Matta came into a situation, he inherited a junior David West. Um, it wasn't like anything close to what any of the rest of these guys, I mean, he's the one that you look at his first few years, and they're genuinely really good. Um, he inherited, you know, Kevin Fry as a senior, David West as a junior, Sato and Chalmers were both sophomores. Um, he had David Young on that team. Um, he had a really, really strong team. Um, and it wasn't just, you know, he, he came in to the A-10, which wasn't very good. He had a guy who the next year would be National Player of the Year. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, uh, I don't know. It, it seems like a lot of people are ready to punt on Coach Steele right now after two years. And I think that kind of um, – speaks to how fandom has changed since, you know, obviously since like Skip Prosser was uh, a second year coach. Um, because I mean, at this point, 
pretty much any time a game ends. Um, it's like the outrage Olympics. Um, everybody who's on the losing side of that game has to like produce the fastest and hottest take about how angry they are that their team lost. And this isn't just like Xavier basketball. This is, you know, Indians baseball and whatever soccer team you follow. And it's like, well, well, you know, we need to fire the coach and bench all the players. Um, And I just don't like, I don't think it's reasonable to after two years say, well, obviously this guy's not got it. You don't know, you know, after two years, I mean, Skip Prosser's results were undeniably worse than coach Steele's, you know? And I think, well, I think probably a lot of these people we want to fire coach Steele probably weren't Xavier fans back then. But if you ask Xavier fans now, are you glad we stuck with Skip Prosser after first two years of struggles? Every single one of them would say yes. You know, there's not a person in Xavier fandom who would say, no, we should have fired Skip Prosser after two years and brought in somebody else because he ended up doing incredible things at this program and obviously brought in um, the best player in the history of the program in David West. Um, So anyway, um, the two things that kind of get pointed out over and over as, as Xavier's Achilles heels this year are free throw shooting and turnovers. What level of influence does a coach really have over those um, areas? Um, I, I, I'll take at least free throw shooting. Um, I've not seen Travis Steele miss a free throw yet this year. And I'll be, 100% honest, I think that the free throw shooting is completely out of his control and blaming him for it is foolhardy. Um, the guys shoot when they shoot, they have shoot around, they have shooting practice. You can either make free throws or you can't. Um, if you want to say he doesn't recruit good free throw shooters, ergo this is his fault, uh, that's a stretch to me, but I guess you can lean into that. But the guys that he's brought in um, actually shoot free throws pretty well. Uh, Kiki's not a great free throw shooter, but Jason Carter is. Zach Fremantle is. Um, Bryce Moore Bryce has Moore been when he gets team. to the line. You know, so that I think that argument's out the window. As far as free throw shooting goes, it's just it's dumb to blame the coach. It is not his fault that they're missing free throws. You can pick whoever you think the greatest coach in basketball history is, and Tyreek Jones will still not make very many free throws. That's just the way it is. I'm going to leave okay. a much more difficult turnovers question to breathe. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Pete. Turnovers. Are they good? Uh, I don't, I honestly don't know. Cause we've played a lot of games where we've played. Wow, I did not expect you to kid glove that one. <laughs> I really thought I'd love that one over the plate. You could just be like, no. And that would, you know, <laughs> well, here, launch here's, you into here's this. Here's the reason for, I don't know. Cause we committed a bunch of turnovers against St. John's and still came out with a win. Uh, we committed a bunch of turnovers against Georgetown <laughs> came out with a win. Our most recent losses, uh, one against Providence, we committed 15 turnovers, which, while not great, is better than those past showings, uh, and lost. And then against Butler, and Butler's a team that traditionally takes pretty good care of the ball. They committed 12 turnovers, we committed 12 turnovers, we lose at the end, it's heartbreaking. Um, the turnover thing can come from, I mean, what style a coach chooses to play. Um, we don't really get up and down the floor at a blistering pace. So not a lot of our turnovers, uh, you'd think like, oh, we're playing too fast. We need to slow it down. 
and uh, we'll cut down on turnovers. Um, that's not really been the issue. Uh, like the issue is we just throw a lot of dumb passes within our offense. Um, th- I don't think that's really on the coach. I don't think coach Steele goes out there and tells the guys like, Hey, I want you to drive into the lane, jump into the air. Don't really have a plan and try to kick it out to a dude who's cutting away, but I want you to throw it behind him as if he's going to shoot a three. Um, I don't think that's part of his game plan but we seem to be insistent on doing it. We get into the middle a lot and then don't really seem to have a set in stone plan. Uh, we think guys are going to spot up uh, and we throw it as if they're cutting. We think they're going to cut and then throw it uh, like they're spotting up. We just do not hit the guys when they're supposed to be hit. Um, I don't really think that's on him. I just think that might have to do with uh, we don't make the greatest decisions when we get into the lane or really at any point uh, with the ball. So I don't really think that's on the coach. I think that has more to do with uh, just the guys not uh, clicking at all times or just uh, trying maybe for the Hollywood pass occasionally um, and just not cycling the offense as much. I think part of this, um, the turnover issue, um, can kind of track to something that a couple of people pointed out on Twitter. We, we put the question out there, you know, is uh, what are your thoughts on Coach Steele after two years? And, and we got some much more measured responses than you probably would have gotten if you'd asked that question Saturday night. Um, but like at JLO 98, um, who, who's always very interactive on Twitter. He said, I haven't seen a cohesive offensive strategy out of him. Players take early contested threes. He says afterwards, he's mad in the next game. We shoot early contested free threes and stand around and watch players. Two years of bad offense. Um, is it him or the players? Um, master of reality said, um, as far as holes, um, there are some things that he pointed out Coach Steele does well, which we're going to get to. But the offensive system, um, the exploiting of mismatches, things like that. I think at times the fact that Xavier does not run a lot of um, sets as far as their offense goes. They, they pretty much um, have, have run a lot of high screen and rolls and three-man weaves out at the top of the arc this season. I think that can contribute sometimes to the turnover issues because you guys get guys, um, Najee Marshall, Paul Scruggs, um, try to drive into the lane and and lose the ball. Um, A lot of the turnovers that those two guys commit come off of them driving and and the ball being taken away from them on the drive. The other thing that has contributed, I think, is Quentin Gooden um, having his highest turnover rate this season since um, his freshman year. Um, Obviously, that's not really something that people saw coming. Um, he, he's really struggled this year, especially in conference play to take care of the ball. Um, and, you know, there are a litany of reasons why that may be. And um, a lot of people have their own theories as to why that might be. Um, but the fact of the matter is Xavier right now does not have anyone that is a primary ball handler. That's turnover rate is under 20. Um unless you count Kiki Tandy, whose assist rate is nine. Um, so he's not really out there trying to set his teammates up himself. Uh, but you look at the three guys who handle the ball most, Gooden, Scruggs, and Marshall, their turnover rates are all over 20. And I think part of it is the type of players they are, and you just take the turnovers with the really good things they do. And part of it could be the system that they're put in where they have to improvise a lot. And sometimes 
um, improvisation is going to lead to miscommunication, which can lead to the ball flying out of bounds and, you know, drilling some unsuspecting fan uh, because the pass missed your teammate. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I think that's a fair critique um, because Xavier's offense has at times really looked stagnant this year. Um, and I think that can contribute as, as far as the turnovers go. I would agree with Brad. Coach Steele has really no influence over the free throw shooting. I don't know what he like. Is he supposed to like have people fake injuries so they don't have to shoot the free throws? Um, he could and very well should. So anyway, um, but what is Coach Steele doing well in your opinion, Brad? Um, I think you got to look at the defense. Um, I would push back a little on the idea that Xavier has had two years of bad offense. Last year, our offense was 56th in the nation. That's not great, but it's not awful either. I mean, Chris Mack had an offense that was 116th, so even worse than this one. Um, but the defense is elite. I think without question, no matter how you want to cut it, this defense is very, very good. We just keep people from putting the ball in the bucket, which, as I've understood, not from watching Xavier a lot this year, is the point of playing offense. Um, and I think he deserves a lot of credit for that. When he got hired, he said, the thing I'm going to do is make the defense better, and we're going to focus on being a good defensive team. And they have been since about the last seven or eight games of last year through all of this year with a couple of notable blips, which I think are going to happen in basketball. This has been a really, really good defense. They're the 16th best defense in the nation playing in one of the, if not the best conference in the nation. Um, they've played a lot of the nation's best offensive teams. They've caught teams when they're hot um, and they have still been excellent. I mean, they've played Creighton, they're the third best offense. Villanova's the 15th best. Heaton Hall is 29th. Marquette is 14th. Georgetown's 33rd. Butler's 25th. We've played all of those teams twice and still have the 16th best defense in the nation. No question a lot of that um, comes from coaching, from game planning, from figuring out how to play defense. If we've not been able to shut down individual scorers, Kamar Baldwin comes to <clears> mind, um, we've done a great job of – shutting teams down so I think that and I think even you know a lot of the more measured responses we got on Twitter said you know he is a great defensive coach no question and I don't think that you get any argument on that okay um yeah I think obviously the other thing you can point to with coach Steele um unless Braden do you do you have something that that you're um wanting to point out uh, no, I think Brad pretty much hit on all of it. The defense uh, is looking a lot better, and I mean, he, he's really got those guys to buy into it, I think. Yeah, I think the other thing you can point out with Coach Steele, which um, at zero zero Havoc pointed out on Twitter, um, he says, obviously, he's a strong recruiter. Um He said um, his game management and ability to hold guys accountable mistakes could use some work. He, that said, he's a second-year head coach, making the sort of mistakes a second-year head coach might make. Um, had to transform his relationship with players post-Mac, which couldn't be easy. Fellow fam told me post-Butler, these are the sort of mistakes you don't see Chris Mack or Tom Izzo making. With respect, Mack has like 300 more games coached than Steele, and Izzo has a zillion more than Mac. that. The expectations for Steele are too high too early, in my opinion. Um, and I want yeah, the first thing he pointed out, 
Coach Steele has brought in um, two guys this season as part of this freshman class, as well as Jason Carter, who are contributing. You know, Fremantle and Tandy were both named to the Big East all-freshman team this year. Um, I don't think you can really argue that they have underwhelmed unless your expectations for them were absolutely sky high, which some people's for Tandy might've been. And and he had the foot injury that kind of held him back earlier, but you look at those two guys and you can see, okay, coach Steele has brought in two guys who are clearly very talented and clearly are going to be contributors. Well, they already are contributors at Xavier. I mean, those two guys have, contributed a lot to Xavier this year and then you look at next year's class it's in the top 20 um Dwan Odom is being talked about as a guy who's a borderline five-star recruit um obviously CJ Wilcher is one of the better shooters in this class um Colby Jones is uh, you know people have said he's about as tough as as basketball players come um and that's something that that you know, a lot of Xavier fans like to hear because Xavier is a program that prides itself on toughness. I don't think you can really look at coach Steele's recruiting and say he's done a bad job of it. Obviously his first class um, that he pieced together after coach Mack left has been um, basically a miss. You know, it was um, Jake Walter who never made it to campus. Uh, Keontae Kennedy who transferred out and, and Dontarius James, who, while I love him, um, a lot of Xavier fans and also objective reality um, point to him not being a huge part of this team. Um, So that one, you know, I mean, people were recruiting against Mac by saying, well, Mac's going to leave. And then Steele had to come in and piece class together. That's going to happen. I think the two classes he's put together though, um, one has come on campus and already proven that they can do well. The next one is um, getting rave reviews before they get to campus I think he's a good recruiter. I think most people um, reasonably would be pleased with what his recruits have brought so far. Um, so, well, can I add to that a little bit? Talk, um, um, his, no. <laughs> his transfers have been really good too. And I think, you know, Jason Carter, who people were down on earlier in the season and might still be, is starting to shoot the ball a little bit better. Bryce Moore just got injured. And that happens. But you look last year, the fact that we had a team that was able to compete with anybody at all was because he brought in Zach Hankins and Ryan Wellage and Kyle Castlin even had a really good year. Part of our offensive problem this year is that, like you mentioned, he had to recruit against Chris Mack's obvious and imminent departure. So he was not able to get good freshmen in last year everybody knew that was going to be the case. So he brought in some guys that bolstered last year. Um, but then part of our offensive problem is that we lost Hankins and Wellage, who were our two most effective players last year, and Castlin, who was the fourth most effective offensive player last year. So that has now left those guys transferred out. That freshman class hasn't really stepped in to fill for them because, you know, we were getting a little bit of, you know, the detritus of recruiting. And this year he's just trying to gobble together an offense with what he's got. And one of his transfers got hurt. And I do miss Ryan Wellage for a lot of reasons. I mean, his contribution, yes, but also the glee he took from every three pointer he made in the Xavier uniform. Um, 
I think there have been players who played for four years and were great shooters at Xavier who combined for less glee on their three-pointers than Ryan Wellage did in just his one year. I mean, the dude loved making threes. Um, and we loved him for it. So anyway, we miss you, Ryan Wellage. Um, but we understand you ran out of eligibility. So um, we've talked about the offense, Brad. Um, are there any other issues? I mean, what else is Coach Steele um, – you know, where else are we seeing the fact he has two years of coaching experience play out? I think um, in in-game adjustments. <clears throat> I think when Coach Steele has a chance to sit down and look at things, uh, he's able to adjust to it very well. Xavier's made a lot of second-half runs this year because I think he's able to use that 10 minutes that he gets at the half to recalibrate the offense or recalibrate anything that's going on with defense, tune the team back up and get them back out there to make a push. Unfortunately, a lot of times this year that has come on the backs of something unexpected happening in the first half, and it just seems like he's not quite able to tweak it as it goes along. Um, we saw this a lot with Chris Mack in his first two years too, where if he could look at it for a little bit and figure something out, he was really good. But on the fly, I mean, how many times did we see Kenny Kreese chasing a ball handler 35 feet away from the bucket and it just seemed like an obvious change to make that didn't get made until the half of a game and I think you're seeing the same kind of things with Travis Steele um he doesn't necessarily like you mentioned it's a lot of isolation offense which leads to at times a lot of standing around and not a whole lot of certainty what's going on Xavier's basically played Big East play without a ball handler um, Najee Marshall's bringing the ball up the floor now we don't have a point guard as such and it seems like early in games teams are able to do something that Steele wasn't expecting or that wasn't the game plan and he's not able to adjust to it until the second half and you know too late that's left us out of games I mean we can all name games where we came storming back you know Villanova um, the Marquette double overtime game definitely not the first Marquette game. Um, I mean, even Seton Hall at home, which we lost by 12. Right. But we brought it back within four. It, but it just doesn't seem like in that first 20 minutes as the game's going along, he's able to make the adjustment. Um, it, you know, maybe if you were a coaching savant, that would be something that he could do. I, I don't think he is. I think he's a normal coach. I think he's going to be a good coach, but it takes seeing games and recognizing what is going on in order to be able to break things down as they're happening and make the adjustments. And a lot of people can watch on TV and say, I would do this and I would do that, but they've got the benefit of Twitter and of pause and of commentators telling them what to do, making them think that they'd be able to see it. I think Joel made a really good point that he dumped into our comments here. Travis Steele's 38 years old. At 38 years old, Tom Izzo and Roy Williams were both assistants. Jay Wright was at Hofstra in the NIT. Bill Self was at Tulsa. Greg McDermott had just taken over Northern Iowa. And Kevin Willard was below 500 in the Big East. So some things never change. I mean, he's got a good team this year. But um, Travis Steele is learning on literally the biggest stage in college basketball. Every game is nationally televised. He's playing in arguably the best conference in the nation and he has to figure it out as he goes. So yeah, 
things that he does poorly. And I don't think any of us would argue that this offense has been good or that he's always adjusting well, but are really magnified by the platform. But I think we're seeing a second-year coach be a second-year coach. And I think given time, he is going to become, um, I think, one of Xavier's best coaches. Um, you know, and you look, I mean, I don't want to say he's going to become Xavier's best ever coach because Xavier's had some great coaches. But you look at what he's done against guys with comparable um, experience to him. You look, you know, Patrick Ewing, uh, Chris Mullen, uh, who was at St. John's last year, both two, both guys with, you know, comparable levels of experience, not guys who have been in this a decade like most of the other coaches he comes across are. Um, and he's taken five of six from those two guys. You know, he's taken three of four from Ewing. He swept Chris Mullen, um, which was not really that tough to do, I think, because Coach Steele watches the entire game, and that gives him a leg <laughs> up on Chris Mullen. Um, but, you know, I mean, there is a lot to be said for for um, experience in college basketball coaching. I mean, there are not a lot of coaches that are not, you know, well-experienced that – you would consider one of the top coaches. I Chris Beard is probably the only one that has been doing this less than a decade that you would say is in, you know, the top 10 coaches in America. I mean, Jay Wright's been doing this a long time. Uh, Roy Williams has. Coach K has. Tom Izzo has. There's just a lot to be said for the experience. Um, and I think Coach Steele has shown a lot in his first two years. I think as he continues to get experience, he's only going to get better. Um, but, yeah, I mean – the, the in-game adjustments sometimes, um, I mean, sometimes even in his final years here, I, I thought Coach Mack was a little slow on making in-game adjustments at times. Um, I think people look back and they see Mack's final year and they're like, wow, he was a great coach. And then they don't think about the fact that there were times during, you know, 2017, uh, namely when Xavier went on that, you know, huge potentially season and ruining losing streak where they went from eight and three to eight and nine. Um, and everybody was like, let's get this guy out of town. Um, you know, I guess it's hindsight is 2020 or whatever, but it wasn't like people were all rosy on coach Mac all the time when he was here. Um, everybody can agree. He was a great coach now, but when Xavier lost six games in a row, um, lost the crosstown shootout that year, people were unhappy with him. Um, so anyway, I guess that all brings us to this question. It has this team underachieved? So Braden, um, preseason Xavier was picked third in the Big East behind only Villanova and um, Seton Hall. They ended up finishing seventh. Is that Does that mean they've underachieved? Um, in my opinion, they have underachieved, but only just really. Um, they've been close in a lot of games that they haven't been able to get across the line. Um I didn't think coming into this season that all of a sudden we were going to be uh, world beaters and like get a three seed in the tournament. And uh, this was going to be our year. Uh, but we have seen improvement, uh, especially on the defensive end. But uh, I was, I personally thought we were going to be at least 500 in the conference. Um, uh, win a lot of our games. I really thought we were going to have a chance to beat Florida early in the season. And that was going to be kind of our big win going forward. Um, that obviously did not happen. Uh, I do think we've underachieved a little bit in the conference, uh, obviously being eight and 10 ending the streak of being 500 or better is pretty disappointing. 
but I don't think this was a crushing disappointment of a season. Um, I mean, we saw uh, we saw improvement from a, a lot of guys. Najee Marshall's having a pretty solid year. Paul Scruggs has been good. Tyreek has been out of this world in some games. Um, you know, the freshmen are contributing. Jason Carter looks like he could uh, do a job, especially next year. I don't think it's a crushing disappointment of a season, uh, but it definitely is a little bit of a letdown from where we thought we'd be, uh, you know, in November, especially, uh, but it's not a huge uh, disappointment. We've still got, you know, the big East tournament, anything can happen there. So I'm not ready to pull the plug and say, this was a gigantic failure just yet. Okay. Um, Brad, you're really negative, so obviously balance this you're out. Not saying you're <laughs> but uh, no, actually, go ahead. I'm, I'm not. Um, whoa, I whoa. <laughs> I wrote at the start of the season that I did not believe that this was a top 25 team when they were ranked in the top 25 when the first polls came out. Um, this, I think, it's if you'd have told me at the start of the year that we would be somewhere around 40th in the Ken Palm rankings, I'd have thought that was about right. People are not recognizing how much we lost from last year and Kiki Tandy's foot injury. I think in Biggie's play, we've seen the player that people expected for most of the year, but he's not even really been completely up to speed in Biggie's play yet. He struggled a lot at the start. Um, was basically just a spot-up shooter. Now we're seeing him do some other things. But when you factor Tandy's injury in, Moore's injury in, um, as far as underachieve, overachieve, I don't think you can count injuries against that baseline. Um, You know, those things happen, and that impacts what a team can do. Like Braden, I thought we would break 500, but 8 and 10 and 9 and 9 are not a world apart. And if we could make a couple free throws, we'd have been 10 and 8. I think this team basically played to its level. You've got an NBA player in Najee Marshall, a borderline NBA player maybe in Tyreek Jones, a guy who definitely would have been an NBA player 20 years ago. Um, And then, you know, a still injured Quentin Gooden. I'm convinced he's not healthy. Uh, Paul Scruggs has missed time with injury. Tandy's missed time with injury. Moore has missed time with injury. If you look at that, you look at the fact that we lost three of our four most effective offensive players from last year, I kind of would ask, you know, what else were you expecting? Uh, If this team makes the tournament and wins a game, then that would land them right where I said I was expecting them to be when we did our first podcast looking at what we wanted from Xavier this year. So I, I think that they're on track. Um, I think that Coach Steele is on track to be a good coach. And, yeah, it's really frustrating. And even in game, I mean, after game, you're right. It does become the Outrage Olympics, and I try to keep that off Twitter, but there's a lot of times on my couch when I want to fire people who I probably can't even fire, you know. Let's fire Brian Hicks and Tom Iser and those guys too, even though they're cool guys and they really have nothing to do with the outcome on the floor. I just want to fire everybody because it gets aggravating. But I think this team is playing – to their level. I do not think that Coach Steele's holding them back. Somebody's going to say something about turnovers, and that just reflects a lack of knowledge of the history of Xavier. Coach Mack had teams who turned the ball over more than this. Every single team Skip Prosser coached at Xavier turned the ball over more often than this team does, including one that turned the ball over 25% of the time they had it. Yeah, it doesn't look great, but... (laughs) 
it's just the way that in the a ten yeah yeah i mean twenty five percent turnover rate and again, I just can't imagine what would have happened to him in you know this day and age of we have to react to everything to the most extreme level. I think this team's on track. I don't think they've underachieved. I think they're going to be good. I think Travis Steele's going to be a good coach. Yeah, and I don't know. As far as the anger thing, like I can get angry at the Indians because there are people there that I don't think are trying to win, namely the owner, you know? Um, Well, no, it's not that I don't think they're trying to win. They're obviously not trying to win. Like Paul Dolan does not want the Indians to win. And he's made that very obvious. No one associated with Xavier doesn't want this team to win. You know, these guys all care more about the results of these games than I do, you know? So I can't sit there and be mad at them because they lost a basketball game that they were trying harder to win than I've probably tried at anything in the last five <laughs> years. You know, I mean, like they care way more about that. It's not Najee Marshall. Wasn't like, well, I'll just let Kamar Baldwin shoot. Who cares? Whatever. I've got other things to do. You know, like I'm sure he was disappointed more so than me. I don't know why people are like, Oh, how dare he do this to me? Like, he was just out there, you know, having a laugh and Kamar Baldwin shot because Najee Marshall doesn't care. Of course he cares, you know? And also that pick would have been a foul in the NFL because that was holding. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, holy cow, you know? Butler, it was a well-drawn-up play. They pulled the guard, and um, we weren't expecting, you know, the, the middle linebacker has to call that out when he sees it, and he didn't do it. Whoever our middle linebacker is failed us there. <laughs> I do think this team has um, underachieved my expectations, but that's probably because my expectations are very rarely realistic. Um, (laughs) So that might have more to do with me than this team. I really thought we'd probably get somewhere around a six seed and be playing for uh, the second weekend. I still think this team can play for the second weekend. I still think this team is going to make the NCAA tournament. And I think that, um, if they put it together, they can absolutely make the Sweet 16. Um, and I would love to see that happen if for no other reason than um, for all the people who were calling for Coach Matt or Coach Steele to get fired on Twitter than to just get mercilessly dunked on. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I thought this team would end up um, a little better um, than 8-10 and 10 in the Big East. But, um, again, that may have just been – because of who I am rather than because of who this team is. Um, I'm a big enough man to admit uh, I don't always view basketball very realistically. So anyway, um, so a couple of last quick things. Um, in honor of coronavirus, who wrote this question? <laughs> anyway, what's the most sick you've ever been? <laughs> Brayden, go ahead. <laughs> Uh, for me, it would be last year uh, in late January, early February when I caught the flu. Uh, I was sick, uh, did not like hardly left the house for about two weeks, had a fever that peaked around 104.5 or so. Um, I was just baking in the house. Um, I think I died at one point and then came back to life. I'm not really sure. Um, but I ended up uh, yeah, being sick for two weeks. I lost 15 pounds in that time. And stumbled back into what I had left of a basketball season. 
Uh, so yeah, that was not a fun time for me. Man, I've heard that the flu is way worse than coronavirus, so you're lucky you lived. Yeah, I know. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I had a TBI last year, and I think that was – I don't know if that's the most sick I've ever been, but definitely the most out of it. Really weird feeling like when your brain doesn't work how it should. Yeah. Um, like it just – nothing was clicking, and I couldn't do stuff. I've forgotten most of – like an entire week long block of time. I don't know what happened in there. Um, and it just, it took a long while to have like my brain heal. It's one thing with like an ankle, you can limp on it or something, but you can't like shut down parts of your brain. So that was the weirdest or most, probably the most sick I've felt. Cause I just, nothing worked. Yeah. When I was real little, Brad, will remember this. Braden was not even like a concept at this point, but I got, double pneumonia um real bad uh to the point where the doctor told mom i basically needed to stay in bed uh because my my lungs were not capable of um supporting me i was on like really strong antibiotics and couldn't get up and do anything and um fortunately mom did was able to give me lots of school work to do then um so that was a blast. Um, it probably contributed to uh, my lack of recovery um, because of the stress that she introduced there. I don't know. Maybe I never recovered. Who knows? Um, but yeah, uh, I was real sick then. Um, and I'm trying to think. Yeah. Yeah. That was probably it. Um, so now that March is here and um, actually it's somewhat pleasant to step outside what is your favorite thing to do on the first warm day of spring Braden? uh usually uh just something that i've not been able to do all winter so whether that be uh go on a run go on a right bike ride uh play a game of wiffle ball it'd be any one of those things that i'm feeling on a particular day most likely uh getting on the bike not being able to do that through the winter is pretty boring so about the time it gets warm it hits up into the even 50s, low 60s, uh, I'll probably be out on the bike trail somewhere just because I have a lot of fun doing that. I miss not being able to do it in the winter, honestly. Okay, Brad? Um, yesterday, my son decided that he's all about baseball. Um, you guys have met the kid. He has varying <laughs> interests that change by the minute. Um, so I stood out in the backyard and threw baseball pitches, and it was sunny, and there was a pleasant breeze, and that's always a good thing to do. Like Braden, I like to get on the bike, got out for a nice ride yesterday. And just to get out and like smell something other than that, like winter snow, salt, everything is horrible smell in the air. Um, love that first warm day of spring. Now I'm standing here watching a gray 44 degree rainfall again, but at least I have yesterday to remember is a really nice day. <laughs> That's right. You'll <laughs> always have yesterday, man. Yeah, I think for me, it's it's go out and, and toss a baseball um you know i loved playing baseball growing up which is not to say i was any good at it because i wasn't you guys know this um <laughs> anybody who's ever seen me knows this um you just look at me you don't even have to watch me try to play baseball and you can be like i bet he's bad at baseball i am i make no bones about that um but i do love to play and it's kind of like a rite of spring to me to go out and toss the baseball with somebody and you know chuck it around a little bit, throw, throw each other a few pop-ups, <laughs> that kind of thing. 
Um, but yeah, I, I do enjoy getting out there and, and throwing the baseball in the first warm day of spring. Although when I was on a baseball team, um, we very rarely waited till the first warm day of spring. Our coach would have us out there when it was like snowing and be like, well, you know, you got to get your arms strong. <laughs> and I'm like, well, can't we just lift weights inside or possibly go home? <laughs> um, but he um, was not interested in my guff. So anyway, um, that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you guys um, who have listened throughout the year. It, it means so much to us, and we're glad that we can bring you a podcast that you guys want to listen to. And um, so for those of you who have faithfully tuned in all year, uh, we do appreciate it. And for those of you who have um, unfaithfully cheated on us with our podcasts, uh, screw all of you. We don't need you. Um, crawl back to your other podcasts um, because we're done. Um, I'm kidding, kind of. <laughs> no, I'm totally kidding. Um, but, but thank you uh, to everyone who's tuned in, even if you um, have only tuned in sporadically. So Xavier's back in action in the Big East tournament this week. It begins on Wednesday um, against DePaul. That game will be at Madison Square Garden. It begins at 9.30 p.m. Um, in theory, <laughs> who knows what it will actually tip off. And so Xavier, obviously that's one they need. And uh, you can follow our website for all the coverage of Xavier as they go through the postseason, wherever that may take them. Thank you guys for tuning in and we hope you tune in again next week.